What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we're joined by Pini Yakuel, a trailblazing entrepreneur and the dynamic CEO of Optimove, a company at the forefront of AI in marketing. From his early days as a university professor in Tel Aviv to the helm of Optimove, Pini's journey is marked by a relentless pursuit of innovation. He founded Optimove in 2009, pioneering the use of predictive analytics and machine learning in marketing, redefining the marketing standards in retail and gaming industries, amongst many others. Under Pini's leadership, Optimove morphed from a consultancy firm to a global SaaS company, serving 350 plus brands worldwide with multiple offices and 200 plus employees. Pini is celebrated for his transformative leadership and commitment to pushing the boundaries of marketing, embodying the forward-thinking spirit marketers should aspire to. Pini, we've been really deep on two topics lately on the podcast, AI and CDP. So when I discovered OptiMove in my research, I had to get you on the show. Thanks for uh, taking the time to chat with us today. Wow. Thank you, Phil. That was a hell of a, a, hell of a, of a prefix. I think I'm going to record it and send it to my mother. She's going to feel good. <laughs> Let's do that. Happy to do it. Your tone of voice was like very regal and uh, formal. So I like that. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, Appreciate we'll make sure to send the link to the, the episode to your to your mom after. I'm sure she'll she'll <laughs> love the the debate on CDPs and warehouse native that yeah. we're about to have. Well, she will. <laughs> I want to chat with, uh, I want to start with uh, Chad GPT maybe, um, okay. you know, just a few months ago, millions of marketers woke up to the power of Chad GPT and started to take AI seriously, but you've kind of been a pioneer in AI applications for marketing for 15 plus years. Like a lot of this stuff right. isn't new to you. The chat UI may be a little bit new, but how wild has it been from your perspective to witness the growth of Chad GPT? Yeah, I think it's it's extremely cool and exciting. I think mostly kind of like from my perspective, my, you know, escapades around AI were mostly around kind of like the, the analysis process of data, customers' data. And I think ChatGPT is mostly around a natural language, right? Which is it's different. And of course, very, very exciting. We're looking uh, in Optiver, we're looking at different ways to utilize ChatGPT. Of course, we have like the... Copywriting assistant and for email and stuff like that that many people have, but looking at like innovative ways to to use ChatGPT, and I think that and and I have a few ideas if you want to talk about later that that could be cool. But I think that like for me it's a it's obviously kind of like what's very clear is like the four graders, you know, teachers need to think about a new way to give them assignments and homework because it's <laughs> yeah. like that that thing is done like. Nobody is surprising. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean that's that's the major disruption that I see. Number one is for how kids do homework. And um, it's like it's like I think it's really hard to tell. Some people are very uh, aggressive in their in their predictions, saying that, like for example, I see people saying that you can take three developers and with uh, with OpenAI you can build the same application that it would take. Another company, hundred developers, you know, like three years ago before. Ch I don't know if that's true. Like I said, I don't know if that's true. Mm -hmm. You, you know, marketers will be completely replaced. Designers will never design, you know, banners or 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 you know, different types of photos or pictures. You know, photo shoots will never exist anymore, and nobody's gonna write copy. 
I don't know about that as well. I don't know about that. I think in some instances, and there's definitely a hype. It's like, it's like the peak of the hype cycle right yeah. now. So we're all getting crazy. We don't exactly know how we're going to use it, where it's going to be very useful. Mm. However, it's definitely a step function in, in AI capabilities. That's why everybody's so excited. To me, I think what's going to happen, it's going to be like what's for sure is going to happen pretty soon. It's going to be like a much better search engine, like a much better Google. That's immediate. I think that's immediate. Like you're asking a question and you're getting an answer that's like an answer that's full of context, that's much more deep, you know, that's well-refined, does not require you to do three more clicks or read four more things and everything is digested your month late, I think that's going to happen very quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely use it as a, a personal search engine myself already. Also like a personal therapist, uh, someone who gives <laughs> me like feedback on my copy. Like it, my wife jokes right. that like ChatGPT is like my my best friend now. And I spend more time with ChatGPT than my wife. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. I want to double down on the part that you said about uh, marketers like potentially replacing jobs. I feel like that's one of the first questions that many marketers have when they're thinking about AI. Like, I feel like AI has been around forever in marketing. Like, you guys have been doing uh, deep in ML, like you said, but like it hasn't been to the forefront like it is right now. And like everyone's talking about it. You said we're at the the peak of the hype cycle. What do you think, in your perspective, are the challenges that AI has to replace everything a marketer does? Does today again? I think I'm, I'm not too deep on the notion of uh, let's say if you talk about a uh, creation like studio work, right? That's a uh, so you got the, like me journey doing a really good job, but that's more of a like comic book type of of work. And I know it's still got problem with the hands, right? That aren't looking that yeah. great. And yeah. I don't know, like I spoke to one of my designers and I was like, what do you think? So she, she was like, look, if I want like, you know, a studio work of, of a picture with a unicorn, you know, riding a motorcycle in Mars, right? Th that thing's going to do it much better than me. Like it's going to be, but in reality, I'm designing banners for OptiMove with our own look and feel and the specific design language that we have and we came up with and the, our own style guide. And I need to integrate this and this, and, and it's not yet there for me. That's that's at least what she said. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. Like, I, uh, we've been using Midjourney for a lot of the, the the cover artwork for for our podcast and some of the episodes recently. And like, that's something I struggle with is like keeping a consistent style from like one image to the other. And from a brand perspective, like, how do you like tweak the prompt to make sure that it kind of looks consistent to your brand tone? Like, it's a uh, I think we're we're still several years away from from doing that, but I feel like the the question stems from um, like especially early stage marketers. Um, I, I mentor a couple of uh, recent graduate students, and they all have this like fear and anxiety right now that like when they hit the job market their entry-level jobs are going to be replaced by marketing. And I've spoken with hiring managers that like they have already just like skipped on hiring like an entry-level email marketer or copywriter because like they just do their first draft in Chad GPT and then they take it from there. Like it saves them a ton of time. Like I'm curious like what advice you have for early stage marketers to adapt to this like AI wave? Look, I think it's been happening for uh, across humanity, right? So uh, everybody talks about, uh, you know, the, the, the major 
the species that suffered the most from the Henry Fall T model in the U.S. was horses. I think you had 30 million horses at the time, and, and, and now you got like 1 million, I think, across the U.S. So it's the, there's always been automation replacing, you know, jobs that people do, and it's going to continue to happen, you know, with autonomous cars, with things like that. It's going to just continue to happen. At the end of the day, I think every person should, if you ask yourself, what is, what is human? Uh, I think those are the things that will probably stay, right? So probably doing a lot of mundane tasks and the uh, grunt work uh, of repetition is in many ways a little bit, I mean, we can do it, right? But we, we don't like it for sure. And uh, so those things will go away. But whenever it comes to like asking a question, these are things that machines cannot do. And carving out a narrative, it's something that's hard to, you know, think in, in like narrative form, which is how we are wired as humans. And designing something, designing an experiment, which is a series of questions. Uh, those, so if you think uh, everything we call it, we call creative. Obviously, I think, you know, it's getting philosophical because probably some of the AI, AI images, you can call them creative, right? With based on the prompt, but mm -hmm. uh, Maybe people who are experts at prompts, experts at, you know, let's call them AI technicians or AI designers, or probably a new profession like that. I don't know. I think, you know, it's always good to, to be curious and be smart and walk all your, on your craft and then you'll, you'll have a job. <laughs> I just think it's a, just the same type of old wisdom that you should probably, probably still applies and would apply. Yeah, I, I love that advice. Uh, I think it stands the the test of time for sure. And uh, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think there's more to be said about being excited about like entering marketing right now with like this this hype cycle than than being like fearful about it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Because it's now in the in the you know it's not, it needs to be mastered now. That's the most exciting time, right? It needs to be actually younger designers or folks that are going in, they have an edge. I mean, maybe, maybe the, the older ones should worry about that, but. Mm -hmm. um, I want to, I want to chat about like the, the capabilities of, uh, of Optimove a little bit here. Like I, I want to get to the CDP component uh, in, in a second mm -hmm. year, but I want to start with like some, some AI uh, capabilities. We uh, dive deep into like uh, how to parse out the gimmicky AI tools. Like you mentioned at the, the, the peak of the hype cycle right now, like every week there's like thousands of like AI tools that are probably just like GPT-4 on top of like uh, doing something else. So we actually featured OptiMove prominently in one of our episodes as like a valuable and, and innovative tool that's really like carving and pioneering uh, this space a little bit. So I'd love for you to unpack for the listeners, the capabilities and, and maybe what you think is most exciting about your AI-based marketing bot, OptiBot. Um, I was personally fascinated when I was reading product docs about the personalized recommendation campaign orchestration, as well as the self-optimizing campaigns that are advanced uh, ABM campaign experiments powered by ML. Uh, I, I just feel like you're like years ahead of most like marketing orchestrations tools here. So yeah, I'd love a uh, Love your comments. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. I think definitely in, in many in many aspects we're years ahead. You know, sometimes it's a plus. You know, sometimes it's a minus because uh, you know some marketers just like to keep it the old ways. But for us, it's I think it's mostly about kind of like uh, so if you, if you think about AI philosophically, you know, today it's it's pretty much democratized, right? So I can you know all the libraries of of all the so if I use for example Catboost. 
as as a you know as as a as a mathematical algorithm to help me solve the problem. My cat post is not better than anybody else's, right? right. So I probably I'm not going to hire the mathematicians to improve cat boost. And if a better version of cat boost comes along, it's going to be immediately on open libraries on Git, or you know we can find it in Python. It's like that mm-hmm. part uh, or data robot or whatever that part has been democratized. So now what's left? Yeah. It's again going back to creativity. So you, on what problem do you aim it on, right? So how do you so if you think about product warp, and this is what I think we have done pretty nicely over the years with, with AI that was less advanced, but how do you, how do you package something around it? So like Optibot was a really nice example where essentially what we said, well, look, when marketers scale their CRM marketing program and they have more and more campaigns, more and more communications with their customers, at some point it becomes messy, right? What happens when you have 50 journeys like, who knows what the hell's going on there, right? It's like, it's a lot of spaghetti and, and uh, it's becoming hard to maintain and manage. So what happens is, you know, many times people just don't, don't do it, right? That they'll have four journeys. And, and so we, we are fortunate enough to work with very advanced clients that they do take their CRM marketing programs to the edge and have very sophisticated CRM marketing programs. So. Optibot is basically what helps you kind of like uh, scale that program, always helps you to make sure the program is healthy. So think about it like, like trimming a bonsai tree as it grows mm-hmm. in the right places. Like for example, you're running, some of the campaigns that you're running are no longer working, right? So, so Optibot goes in, analyzes this campaign for, you know, across a month or two and comes back with the recommendation. Look, this, this thing isn't working anymore. You can stop it with a click of the button. Now you have a cleaner program, right? Because this campaign stops competing with others, right? We know it's it's not working. So so various examples like that, where we we would find, for example, we would say, look, like this campaign is not proving statistical significance. At the same time, there's a sub-segment of this campaign, like an inner group that is actually proving statistical significance. So we're saying 20% of your segment is beating its own control group. But the entire campaign, the entire segment is not. So we have a, you can click a button here and you shrink down the campaign to that 20% only. So then you can, and you, we call it release the customers back into your marketing calendar. So we release the customers to see something else because 80% of them don't like it. Mm-hmm. So we, we offer call it kind of like the price of generalization. So if you think about everything we're doing in marketing uh, and also in medicine, if you want to get philosophical, is basically we're always paying the price of generalization, right? So, you know, you, you, you drive your car, you see a billboard uh, of an ad, which works on average across the masses, right? But you hate it. Uh, but on digital, I can, I can make sure that you see something that you like and I'm going to see something else that I like, right? So that's the power of personalization. It's essentially getting rid of the price of generalization. We always pay the price of generalization either because it's too expensive, just like Henry Ford going back. Henry Ford said, you can paint it any color you want as long as it's black. Cause he didn't want to personalize. It was expensive. Mm-hmm. He didn't want mm-hmm. to solve that problem. He just wanted to make sure he's manufacturing as many cars as possible. He didn't want to deal with color. Like that's, that's a lot of work. So later when the technology became better, 
they could deal with it, right? So it's either it's because it's too expensive, it's too difficult, but obviously today we can do it. So, so a lot of the AI is also focused on, you know, finding those micro segments, finding those uh, uh, inner patterns that we can see in the data, carving out a specific experience that's going to fit 30 customers a day, right? 30 customers a day. They want to see that because, you know, they just starting to get interested in this new type of, of a product or a game. And I want to talk to them about it, right? I want to, I want to search for something new. So that's one angle. I mean, I'm going in tensions here. So please stop me and, and get me back to the home base. No, no, I, I love it. I, uh, yeah, I think that the the idea of price, uh, the the price of generalization, uh, in in a way of thinking of like the the value of personalization and like micro segmentation is is really cool. Um, maybe like uh, I know that like you you chatted a lot about um, marketing fatigue with uh, um, the report that uh, OptiMove came out with a 2023 customer marketing fatigue survey and I feel like this is a good uh, tangent or, or a good um, transition here because like the the value of like what you're building from an AI capability standpoint in building those micro segments is directly like countering this idea right like it, it, in one of your LinkedIn posts, you suggested that marketers might be pushing too hard and that marketing fatigue is really real. And um, like, I think like some of the insights were just like a significant majority of consumers want less marketing. They feel overwhelmed and they barely even open emails. So I'd love your take on like considering these insights and then like the topic of marketing fatigue. How might marketers innovate their communication strategies to transform marketing fatigue into a sense of like anticipation or engagement for their audience? Like, how do you, how do you counter uh, marketing fatigue? You, you got to change the paradigm. It, it's a paradigm shift. So the reason marketers feel like that is still the vast majority of marketers, you know, let's, let's think about what they do, right? They, they would basically, there's a few use cases that are, that you, let's say the world has decided these are good use cases. There's like, there's going to be some kind of, and usually it's designed by journey. So there's going to be some kind of a welcome journey, some kind of a life cycle series, some kind of a card abandonment, some kind of a win back series. And everybody's going to do the same thing. Everybody's copying, you know, marketers move from company to company, consultants, advisors, they come in, they, they use roughly the same tools and they just do those rule-based, it's all rule-based, right? So it's yeah. like you know, send this, wait three days, after three days, did it make a purchase, didn't make a purchase, yes, no, okay, if yes, send an SMS, if no, it's all rule-based. So we are designing journeys that we are, uh, we can look at, we can we can present those journeys on a slide, uh, you know, to our, to our managers or our superiors, and they understand it because it looks easy to understand. And then we're just shoving it to our customer's throat, thinking that that's what they want because we can explain it to ourselves. And, and, you know, obviously it's many times driven by all of the problems, right? Uh, marketing departments are still built by silos sometimes. So I still have clients where they have an email team and that team is completely separate from the, the mobile team or the website team. And, and there's one customer. So the email team is getting tasked with, with more revenue or more results or growth. So they push out more emails, right? And they hammer strongly with like this one message or this one coupon that they have. But then the mobile team is doing the same thing because they have other goals. So sometimes it's because of that. And I think just the rule based nature of the way people work and just those same use cases 
there's no creativity there in, in my mind, right? I, 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 our best customers and the people that I enjoy engaging with are people that are saying every day, kind of like, what new conversation starters I can find to delight my customers. So I, I look at it like a little bit like, a, I don't know, I, I hope this doesn't sound too, uh, you know, crass, but like, let's, let's think about, you know, even, you know, in, in courtship, when you're trying to, to engage with, with the, somebody you're, you're uh, interested in, right. And you don't know that person and you're still very much, uh, you know, foreign from one another. Then how do you go in? Like, what's your, what's your entry line? Are you going in with, with something mundane and, and, and let's assume that you don't look like Brad Pitt, right? Which is not fair. Let's assume that you are a normal human being, right? And now you got to go in and there's somebody you like and you need to start a conversation. So can you notice something interesting? Like, can you, can you see something interesting that you can talk about? Like, you know. Or you just go in, hey, how are you? How's it going? Stuff like that. So I think to me, it's the same thing. So we're looking for conversation starters based on the data. So if I can see that you're interested in something new, you checked out something new, you reached a point in your life cycle that you're, you may be looking for something. So when I go in there, I'm relevant. I'm interesting. I'm, I'm helping you as, as a consumer. And then you're going to win their loyalty. That, then they're going to love you. Then, then everything changes, right? Um, so I think that's the, it's just kind of like being thoughtful about those communications and, and looking at it as an innovation center. So always push out new ideas, always test them out, have many of them, go micro, go granular, talk to people about specific things. And, and with, with new technologies today, like Optimal, you can actually scale that. You can do that. It doesn't have to be a huge team, right? With a few people, you can get a lot done. Very cool. I yeah, very much resonate with this idea of like the the best practices and folks that are doing like the the rule based stuff and and working with sales teams that are just like yo like we're down on quota this quarter like we need another promo campaign let's like batch and blast our our entire list with this with this coupon right so I like practically speaking like how how what does it look like for a marketer in OptiMove to put that um campaign together like you said you're you're not replacing the marketer who is like coming up with these ideas and and these messages right, right? so like it does the marketer like write like a hundred different variations of the message does it just write like five of them and then OptiBot comes up with variations of it like how, how does it work like practically so, so, so there's, so there's a few, there's a few elements. One element is to make sure that the marketer, first thing we want to do is we want to, we want to, we want to trim down speed of ideation to execution. So instead of that thing taking like a week or two weeks or, or a month, depending on the size of the organization, we want it to be in like minutes to hours, hmm. right? So I have an idea. I want to be able to push it out, right? Otherwise, uh, you know, we're not that patient, right? Especially the younger generations, it's less and less patience. You don't get, you, you, you want to have an idea, you want to try it out, right? You want to push it out. So that's number one. So how do you do it, right? So number one, you have, a, so you have access to data. So it's very easy for you. You have an idea, like you thought about something cool that you can say to your customers, you go to Optimum, you check in the data, if that thing exists. Oh, cool. Like I found a segment of, 
you know, 7,000 customers that could match that criteria. That's great. Uh, you can start to build out like this, this uh, whether it's one-off or a series or some kind of a journey or something that's with dependency. And uh, so you can push it out. And then sometimes, you know, those, those ideas, those micro segments, the system is going to surface it for you. Right. Okay. So, Hey, I found a persona, like here's a persona of customers who are, you know, really high value customers and they never make returns. Hmm. And so, and then kind of like, you can see that, you know, returns typically correlate with the better future value because sometimes, so in this case, you want to be, maybe do something which is counterintuitive and actually encourage them to make returns and show them how easy it is. Cause you've seen the data that you can lose some of them if you don't. Or so, all sorts of things that come like through the data, we're going to surface different segments and different ideas, different micro segments that you should target. But then again, also sometimes just your creativity and stuff that you think of. Once you schedule that uh, experiment or that campaign, and I use the word experiment on purpose because mm -hmm. we want to treat it as a scientific experiment. But once right. you've scheduled it, let's say it's going to go out on Friday, the AI comes into play where Guess what? On Friday, you know, some of the customers are also going to be eligible to something else. Because hmm. you just, the problem is it starts to, it starts to overlap, right? It starts to collide. So I'm a customer, Peony, and I'm eligible for four different messages on Friday, right? I've abandoned my card. I, it's my birthday. Uh, I was flagged by as a customer at risk of churning. And also you just thought about this new idea for this new brand and you feel like that I'm going to respond well to this new t-shirt brand, right? So there's four things you want to say. Which one are you saying? What are you going in with? So then what we do, we always like to say, is a kind of like a, the marketer defines the framework. So that framework of those four campaigns was defined by the human being. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to let the AI optimize. So the, the, the machine will optimize. So you as a marketer, all four campaigns match Peony. They, they're all fine to be sent out. But which one are you going to choose? In a way, it's kind of like a glorified the next best action type of a, type of a, of a model. So we're going to use AI and we're going to choose uh, the subset, maybe one or two or three or all four campaigns to be sent out to you on that given day. And, and it's typically the one that is most likely to impact your short-term future value. Very cool. So that's one, one angles, but it's still very much a collaboration. Like I don't, it's not like, it's not like Optimove is a, you know, a magic box when you just kind of like pay us money and we, there's a machine, <laughs> five robots and they're all sending the campaigns, yeah. designing the template. No, it's, it's, we help the, it's like, it's like an Iron Man suit, right? So we help the marketer to become better with optimization, but we still need the marketer to come up with the design, the experiments, the thoughts, the, the questions, the, the the types of things that they want to say, but then we can optimize in between that, that framework that was designed by the marketer. Very cool. I, I think you, you broke that down very well. Like, I think that's really an approachable way of, of thinking about it. Like the marketer is still the one coming up with the ideas and like setting them up as experiments, but the machine is the one deciding what is the best message to be sending to this person given this time right now. Right. Okay. Very right. cool. Um, on, on this idea, like I, 
Um, I, I love that you like you call it experimentation because like it is all like scientific based. Uh, what is like the the likelihood of like this message best resonating with with this person based on statistical significance of like historical data right. and all that stuff. Um, I want to talk about like one of your LinkedIn posts where you talk about the the success metrics of of email specifically. Now, email is like one of the main channels of of OptiMove, and I, like the fact that you guys are setting everything up as experiments allows you to get uh, incremental reporting on like the value of a message in a different way than your average rule based marketer who does like a batch and blast campaign. And then like, what was the success of that campaign? They look at like the open rate and the click-through rate and then maybe how many people purchased it. But on LinkedIn, you wrote a post where, where do emails go when the lake freezes? And it honestly made me rethink email uh, success metrics completely. And I don't say that lightly. Uh, you basically argue that like click and purchases or even opens are the wrong way to attribute marketing influence revenue because emails have the potential of impacting way more than just like, did people open and click on it? This idea that you bring forward about like simply, hey, remember us type of email can prompt purchases and you have the data to, to back some of that up. So maybe it's time to broaden our view of, of email campaign success beyond clicks and purchases. And I know like that many marketers will think that's that's crazy. Like, click-through rates is like the number one metric that we have to look at. Like it tells us how engaging our emails were. If someone didn't open it, like we can't consider that person influenced by our email, but in your opinion, like based on, on what you're, you're seeing in the wild, like how can marketers reimagine their campaigns to amplify the effect of simply showing up and landing in the inbox as a way to uh, potentially uh, influence revenue? Yeah, I think I think that's a, that's a great question. I think for us for, from the get go, maybe because we we you know I've never grew up kind of like a, in in email marketer in email marketing or or you know around that problem. I I basically you know when we started to design Optivove and saw how people do it, I grew up with a background of uh, operational research. Right when I say grew up, I mean university. Right now, not when I was so we. So stochastic modeling, operation research, and it's a specific mindset, right? So that mindset is a more of a scientific mindset to, to problems like this. And essentially you're saying, look, like if I want to see if something works, I got to test it against the placebo. It's just like they do in clinical trials, right? Recently, we saw, we also kind of like the Pfizer results of, of the COVID vaccine and the Moderna results of the COVID vaccine. And we saw it against, like I, I saw it in the news, right? It said in the news, like what, what was the response of the placebo group? The placebo group didn't get the vaccine. They get like a, I don't know, a shot of like water or something, right? Nothing in it. So it's the same thing. Ultimately, when, when an email is being sent, um, it's being sent to, we don't know the intent of that customer. The customer, it may be a VIP customer that's shopping every other day, depending on, on the service, right? They may use that service every other day. The fact that they use this service today and the email was also sent today doesn't guarantee that the two are correlated. Doesn't guarantee that you can attribute that to the email, even though we clicked on the email. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a famous, uh, um, it was like a, like a famous, not experiment, but like a joke of like two people handing out coupon to a pizza place and one person is winning by, by landslide and they ask him, how'd you do it? So we said, I went into the store and everybody who stood online, I gave them the coupon. <laughs> 
So, so then he won, right? Because they're already buying pizza, you know? So they're already buying pizza. And, and so some of your customers are already about to use or transact or, you know, with your, with your service or product. So how can you isolate that? That's the question, right? So, so what we do is we always, we, we use the, you know, control groups and then we run a, a statistical credibility test. We want to make sure that this is proven to beat out. The, so it's like two cohorts. You have the cohorts, you have the treated group, the group that basically got treated with the campaign, just like in clinical trials, we got treated with the medicine and you got the group that is the control group and they were not treated. They're just who they were before. And both groups are exposed to TV ads and billboards and radio ads. Both groups are exposed to banners across the internet. And, and ads on both groups, maybe searching Google, both groups, maybe on Facebook. The only thing that separates the two groups is this one email being sent uh, on Friday at 2 p.m. or whether it was sent time optimization or whatever, during Friday. Now, what happened? You want to see that one group surpasses the other. That's the test. That's it. Um, it's a much better, more scientific. I, I'm not saying click-through rates are not... I'm not saying they're uninteresting, I'm saying they're uninteresting, but is it going to give me like some, sometimes people are seeing it funny, like to me, I, I would meet like an e-commerce company and they say like 30% of my revenue is, is attributed to email because of click to purchase. <laughs> Interesting. If it's 30%, how come you're paying them $1,000 a month, right? So that's kind of like 30%. It's not. I mean, it's, it's a... It's a valuable, it's a valuable tool. It's, it's not 30% of the company's revenue. Uh, some of it would have, would have happened regardless. And mm -hmm. we show both like on Optimum, we show click to purchase and we show test and we show incrementality. We show the uplift. Right. So, but I think the uplift, like as a scientist, it's by far more accurate. People have a hard time with it. They say, wait, but sometimes the treated groups, some of them don't see the email because it goes to spam. And you take credit for that. Uh, and I say, on the contrary, because it's go to spam, it's harder to prove. So the treated right. group now has a, a bigger weight to carry to prove that it's better than the control because a small portion of it, it's like the control. Mm -hmm. So it, it gets a bit philosophical, but to me, it's, uh, it's the only way to really know if something is working or not, uh, is using that, that mindset. So we, we're having some educational battles with, with some clients, but we're able to convert them. And when we do, and we convert the entire executive team, you think about control groups and think about how to measure success in, in incremental, in kind of like the incremental language and think about uplifts, it changes the whole thing. It becomes much healthier. The discussion, the debate, like what is valuable, what drives revenue becomes so much more clear. And um, so that's, that's what I believe in. Um, and I think it's it's the best approach. Yeah, it's fascinating. I feel like the the way like when I had that like light bulb moment when like I was working with uh, data scientists uh, at WordPress who who were like designing uplift models for our promotional campaigns. Like the way that I had that light bulb moment where they were explaining like 
when we send out a promo campaign with like a coupon to get people to like buy a, a premium WordPress site, we don't want to send that out to this whole cohort of people because some of those people are already going to convert. So essentially we would be losing this much right. revenue if we gave them that 50% off. Right. You cannibalize some of that. So they were like modeling that out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was like the, the light bulb moment for me, but yeah, that, it's super fascinating how, you you broke that down. Um, I I know we're we're running on time, so I wanna I, I wanna spend a bit of time talking about uh, CDP. I know it's a it's a big piece of the OptiMove product, right? Um, an interesting right. debate right now in Martech is like packaged versus composed CDP unbundling versus like the the bundled product, right? But I feel like you're in a unique spot with OptiMove because it's such a huge platform in terms of capabilities. It's a CDP. It's a cross channel marketing automation platform it comes with a bi tool it has ai powered experimentation features like it's it's so powerful but also just like like i i could come up with a list of like 25 different martech vendors if you put them all together like they would equal optimove so i'm curious like your thoughts on like like that marketer who's like getting to pick like those custom solutions and like they're tailored and maybe they're like experts in that one thing that they do. And maybe OptiMove right. like is, is really good at a lot of things, but like it maybe isn't as great as like that one tool at that one little thing. Like how do you see that debate about like packaged MarTech versus like unbundling it? Yeah, I think I think it, it really depends on on each company and the needs of that company. I think I think we're probably not, I would say, 25 tools. I would say we're like probably three, like big three, I would say. Uh, but to us, like we feel that, uh, look, the question is, you know, can you unlock more value by having things cohesive in one place? I, I think what we what we claim and what we believe is that data and channels like messaging channels need to live in the same place. Uh, so when you say CDP, when I suppose, well, I was like CDP already, the data is there to drive some kind of business value. The fact mm -hmm. that it's sitting somewhere and you can push it to another place. Like ultimately the question is, what are you going to do with it? So are you going to, is it for analytics? Are you going to drive better decisions because of it? Or are you going to, you know, delight your customers and use this for personalization? So. Uh, for us, we believe that uh, when you put data and channels together, you can create this type of like AI feedback loop that I was talking about before, only because the two exist together. When you break them down and they start to get siloed, so yes, maybe bundling data separately as a silo will be done very well by one tool, but then, you know, some of that data will be forwarded to another tool that does messaging. But that tool in itself, it's still inherently rule-based. So what it does is you feed that tool with an entry point of like a smarter segment, but that tool will still decide so decide and make decisioning rule-based in a rule-based nature. Mm -hmm. So what we feel like is you need to feed AI and, and decisioning into the bloodstream of channels. Mm -hmm. So the bloodstream, I mean, in the place where you send the message and you engage with a customer, that that bloodstream need to be, you know, hyped with with data, with with decisioning, and that comes when it's together. It doesn't come through API, like it doesn't come through because the APIs are good about sharing data. Yeah, let's think an audience from here to there. 
right? Let's say, and then their audience is going to start a journey in some kind of a system, right? That audience is going to go into an email system. It's going to start a journey there. Fine. It doesn't change the nature of that email system. That email system is still running with kind of like on, on rule-based food. So, oh, gas. Oh, I lost with all of my analysis here. So, <laughs> but that's why, that's why we feel it's powerful when it's together. So we think we're like, it's like a CDP and MMH together. That's how it needs to happen, right? When they're together. Uh, and the reason we, we, you know, we can do a kind of like our side, you know, being 500 people company, having the same entrepreneur, me for 12 years and just keeping at the same problem, kind of like not letting go of this one problem. It's like an obsession that you keep going at it day after day. So slowly, but surely you, you solve more pieces of the puzzle. And now I see like we're in this critical place where we can actually enjoy this virtual cycle of optimization of data and channels living in one place. Very cool. I love how you're, uh, you worded that, like this idea of uh, multiple tools versus just the one that is kind of like all working seamlessly together. Like uh, I think all, all marketers listening right now have to deal with, with APIs and, and syncing data and it's not real time, right? Like getting to have that, that CDP component there. Um, and I know that like looking under the hood of the CDP component of OptiMove, it's uh, powered by Snowflake, right? Like you guys are Snowflake partners. And I find that fascinating because it feels like you're also years ahead in terms of a MarTech vendor perspective, in terms of like warehouse native connectivity. But I'm curious, like if, if I have that right, like when a new customer signs up for OptiMove, uh, whether they have an existing data warehouse or not, like if, if they do and it's on Snowflake, like um, maybe that saves a bit of implementation time. But like regardless of their setup, you're setting them up on a Snowflake instance uh, for a data warehouse and you're ingesting a bunch of stuff, ETL, and then figuring out the RETL piece of that and how to push it to, to other tools. Um, does like OptiMove's messaging capabilities just like sit on top of Snowflake? Like if I was to go in OptiMove and like build a segment of like uh, people that are about to convert or people that like open my emails, does that data live on top of Snowflake or are you still replicating that in another separate database of uh, that OptiMove has? Oh yeah, this is like a detailed architectural discussion, but uh, to, to your point of the, so I think we, and Phil, you and I talked about a little bit before, so we can share with the audience. I think that's the, this notion of that you basically copy data from one place to another and then use those copies to do some things. Oh, can you just all drink from the same well and, and you know, and not move the data around? So I think, right. I think. There are some implementations of, of people being, let's say if I have Snowflake and my client has Snowflake, so I can say, your data is already there, you know, let me have access to it. And when I consume it, we're going to be, you're going to be, we're going to do it from your Snowflake credit. So like you will be paying for it from a computation perspective, right? So, which could be convenient for, for clients at the same time. Uh, sometimes to do more applications that are, that are a bit more uh, powerful, you do need to have the data living kind of like closer to where you're at. So to your point, we run on Snowflake from, so we, with our clients, right? If they have Snowflake, we can do 
care about Snowflake to Snowflake data mirroring, and then you basically have zero ETL, which is which is amazing. It's it's a Snowflake thing. Uh, but then kind of like when, when our customers are engaging with our UX, we're not using Snowflake as the as the database for the UX because yeah. design is a data warehouse. It's not it's not necessarily gonna respond fast enough. It's not necessarily gonna and uh, so it's it's an analytical data warehouse in the cloud. So if you want to gulp up and crunch large amounts of data and and get it running, in, uh, you know, in in adequate times uh, for for a for a pretty economical cost, they're, they're amazing for that. Right? It's a game changer. I think you know, we're just seeing all of our clients. You know, they used to run on this and that. Now so everybody's moving to. I think either Snowflake or BigQuery. I think those are the two big winners. Um, but at the same time, I still think that you need uh, you, you you do need copies of data uh, close to you to achieve some of the things that you want to do. But it's 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 obviously always open, and I think as technology evolves, right, maybe that will be that constraint will be completely lifted. I mean, uh, and it's better ways to copy data today, right? It's better ways to copy. It's better ways to to make sure it's. Uh, doesn't break along the along the way. There's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, but still, I think uh, that's still the main use cases. Gotcha. Yeah, appreciate the the breakdown there. I know we're short on time, so I'm going to hit you with one last question, Pini. This has been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your time. Uh, you're a founder and a CEO, and you run a company of uh, multiple hundred people. You have like 300 plus customers right now. This is clearly a lot going on for you right now. Uh, one question we ask all of our guests on the Humans of MarTech podcast is how do you remain happy and successful in your personal career? How do you find balance between all of the things you're working on while staying happy? Look, it's it's a you know it's it's obviously a journey and a choice that that you make, and obviously I'm I'm not forced to do it. I'm I'm straight choosing to do it. And to me, what I like is is the it's the evolution, right? I like the especially as an entrepreneur where the company grows. You got to grow with the company because I'm I'm always doing a job that I'm not equipped to do. Basically, I'm always doing something that I have no experience in doing. And which is pretty challenging. And I think uh, something that I really liked about this job is I read somewhere that like the ultimate definition of freedom is to be able to fix your own mistakes. And I've been fortunate to do it quite a few times at Optimove. So that's my biggest kick. Awesome, Pini. Thanks so much for uh, for your time. Uh, anything you want to plug to to the audience? I'm going to share links to Optimove and a bunch of the product docs too. I'm sure a lot of folks are going to be curious to to check out the product. But uh, anything you want to plug before we go? No, I think just the usual stuff will be fine. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for your time, Pini. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you, Phil.